All right, we're going to be looking at Genesis 1 tonight, and before we do, um, I want to set up how to read Genesis 1, because that's really important for understanding the text. And um, I know there are several athletes in this room who are on sports teams here, but I'm sure all of us at different times have competed um, in one thing or another, whether it be athletic or not. Who's ever had a playlist of a couple of songs that they listen to before a match, a meet, a game, whatever, to get themselves psyched up. Okay, anybody want to share some songs? Don't stop me now, Don't, Wow, beautiful. What else? The what? The Rocky theme song? Well done. Any other volunteers? Anything Eminem? Okay. Who's willing to admit that the Glee version of Don't Stop Believing is on their playlist. <laughs> who can, who's secure enough and who they are to admit that? Yes, thank you, Sophia. It's beautiful. <laughs> we all envy her honesty right now because we all have that song on our playlist. Um, in high school, the song that's probably most prominently featured on my playlist was, uh, y'all probably are familiar with Guns N' Roses, yes? I know that's kind of, is that oldies now, maybe? Um, Welcome to the Jungle? Yeah. Okay. Um, so I would listen to Welcome to the Jungle to get psyched up for soccer games. That was what I played in high school and everything. Um, here's my rhetorical question, right? How many of y'all, instead of listening to Welcome to the Jungle, would listen to a lecture by a sociologist about the corruption and the drug use in 1980s L.A. and the toll that took on the moral and psychological lives of aspiring entertainers to get psyched up for a soccer game or a football game? Okay, it's about the exact same thing that Welcome to the Jungle is about. But it's a totally different genre, right? And it hits us a totally different way. In order to read Genesis 1, we actually need to learn from that. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 tell a story, tell, say something about the exact same event, the creation of the world. But they're totally different genres. And different genres are used for different communicative purposes. So you listen to a song to move you, right? You read poetry to move you, right? You listen to a lecture and you listen to and you read a textbook in order to be informed to get a kind of scientific and detailed account. They could be talking about the exact same thing and both be truthful in the way they talk about it, but because they serve different communicative purposes, they will sound very, very different. Does that make sense? It's crucial to reading the first two chapters of the Bible. In order to read Genesis 1 well, we have to consider what is its purpose and what genre is it. Because to set Genesis 1 against Genesis 2 is really kind of, it's a very unsophisticated way of reading the Bible. It, it's, it would be like comparing a lecture about 1980s, 1980s L.A. to Welcome to the Jungle and saying you have to choose that one of these two is the right kind of depiction of that scene at that time. That would be unfair and actually unsophisticated and unlearned to do that, right? And so there's several instances in the Scripture, actually, where the same event is told different ways for different purposes. It occurs in several places, but one place you can look quickly is Judges 4 and 5. In Judges 4 and 5, in Judges 4, there's a historical account of these two leaders in Israel, Deborah and Barak, delivering Israel through military conquest from the hands of the Canaanite king. And it's told in prose form, 
It meets all the kind of requirements of just regular, the way a Hebrew writer would write history. But you know what Judges 5 is, the chapter right afterwards? It's a song about the exact same event. And it reads totally different because it has a totally different purpose. It's to move people. Whereas Judges 4 is to inform people. Neither one of them's wrong. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 are two different types of way of talking about the same event for two different purposes. Moses in Genesis 1 wants you to be moved by what he's talking about, to feel the power of the claim that he's making, which is all that was made has been made by God, and all that he made was good. He wants you to actually feel those truths and be moved by the truths. So he wrote, as a prologue, as an introduction to the book of Genesis, he wrote a poem. And you can tell this is a poem because it has verses It has structure. It actually has meter. We lose it because we're not reading it in Hebrew. It actually has meter. It has a chorus. It has a crescendo and climax at the end. It meets all the requirements of a poem. Because what he wants to do is he wants to move us the way poetry moves us. And in Genesis 2, he actually has this different purpose. And we're going to talk about that next week. So I'm going to read Genesis 1. It's a long text, but it's a beautiful text. And so I'm going to go through all of it. It's something many of y'all are familiar with. This is the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made an expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth spring vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens and gave light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the waters and the seas. Let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers, and the flowers fade, but the word of God has stood and will continue to stand forever. Let's pray. Lord, as we consider a text that has a lot of questions in it and can be interesting to think about, dear God, I pray that you would engage our minds but also engage our hearts and I pray that we would see the beauty that you have to teach us here and that would work into our hearts a love and appreciation and a desire to know you, dear God. Be with us and teach us, Holy Spirit. Jesus, become beautiful to us. In your name we pray. Pray. Amen. I spoke about this last week, and I want to reiterate it this week and, and probably another week or two. Uh, and I talked about it last week when I talked about what I hope RUF could be for y'all. And it was about how y'all asked the how question very well. How do you get through life? How do you get through all the short-term things, uh, classes, relationships, semesters, your college career, academic career, professional career? Um, but that's not the first question in life. The first question in life is Why? I want to encourage you and hope that this can be a place that you can struggle with alongside the rest of us struggling with the question of why. In your busyness here at Stanford, I hope RUF can be a place where you're free to struggle with why. Why are you doing this? Because if you're not careful, you'll be incredibly busy for the next four years and you actually won't know why you are. How to live well, how to struggle, how to do life. All those questions are secondary to why. And if you're not careful, you'll distract yourself from doing the hard work of asking why. And in a sense, just think about it this simply. When my uh, little girls get a present they've never seen before and they unwrap it, their first question is not, how does this work? That's their second question. When they encounter something new, especially when it's gifts, the first question is, what is this for? And the second question is, how does it work? Our first question in all of life is, what is this for? And what we're asking tonight is, what are we for? Who made this and what are we for? And those are really the two points we're looking at tonight. The text begins, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this is answering that first question. I know it's obvious, but we're going to talk about it for a little bit. We're going to talk about who made us and what for, because those things go hand in hand. So Moses is, you kind of kind of understand the context that Genesis is being written into. The Israelites had been enslaved in Egypt for several hundred years. Moses had delivered them out of Egypt. I know this is biblical history stuff, but track with me for a second. They've been delivered from slavery, and they've been wandering in the desert for decades. That God had said, there's this promised land, and it had been decades, and they hadn't gotten there yet. And what they're doing is, they're looking around, 
And all around them, there are stable geopolitical national units, other countries, other tribes that are stable. They have their land. They're stable politically. They're stable even spiritually in some senses. And they're looking around, they're saying, all right, we followed this God out of Egypt who delivered us from slavery. And literally, they're being tempted to go back into slavery because they're like, living in the desert sucks. And we're looking around, and we see all these other people worshiping other gods. And they're 10 times more stable than we are. We're starving at times. We don't have water at times. Is this God really the right God? Moses is writing Genesis 1 into that context for the very purpose of establishing the one true God is the one true God. And so what he's doing in Genesis 1 is really cool because what he's doing is he's going through and he's listing all of the things that all the other cultures worship. That's the structure of Genesis 1 more than anything else. He's saying lightness and darkness... This God made those. The sun and the moon, what they worship, this God made those. The mountains, the seas, what they worship, this God made those. The plants and the animals, this God made those. You see, what he's doing, he's making an argument actually that this God is the God over all, and he's placing all the other gods, all the things that we're tempted to worship, and all the things the surrounding cultures that the Israelites were looking at, all the things they were worshiping, he's putting them all under that God. He's categorizing all of creation. He's saying, all these things you're tempted to worship, this God made all of them. Meaning, none of those things can be God. The point is this. Moses is answering the question of primacy. What is ultimate? What is first? What is above all? What precedes all? And what's interesting about this question... And what's interesting about maybe the way this question is addressed in our culture today, especially in academic environments, is that contemporary atheist thinkers and writers actually haven't answered that question yet. I'm not, I I think if you talk to them, they'll actually be honest and say, we haven't answered actually the question of origin yet. In fact, in some ways they haven't asked the question, where did stuff come from? Where did time, matter, and space come from? Because you see, the Big Bang is not a theory that answers that question. Because the Big Bang is the theory that there was something, and then it became something else. What Genesis 1 is saying, there was nothing, and God spoke, and then there was something. And that something progressed in history. You get what I'm saying? The Big Bang is not actually a theory of origins. I'm not... You can even consider that, and I'm, I'm not even like positing one way or another whether or not it's right or wrong. That's a great conversation we should have another time. I'm just saying... It's actually not a theory of origins. The Big Bang is there was something, right, a singularity, whatever it is, for those of you that are a lot smarter than me, and it became something else. Genesis is saying, let's take another step back before there was nothing, and how did you go from nothing to something? Moses is answering a question of primacy, of first, a theory of origins. And the contemporary atheist thinkers and philosophers actually haven't answered that question yet. In some ways, I don't think they've really asked it. And so, again, I, I talked about this last week, so I'm going to be brief, but there are, fundamentally, there are fundamentally two answers to the question of origin that everybody has. Either A, you believe that what is first is something that was personal, whatever it was. It was something personal. It was a personal force that thus had a purpose for creating. Or you believe that what was first was something impersonal. It was just something that for no particular reason became something else, right? And in one situation, if it's a personal force that preceded everything, 
then all of created order has intrinsic meaning and it has beauty. That means there's cause for thanks and there's cause for joy when you encounter beauty, when you encounter goodness, when you encounter truth in creation. If you read Surprised by Joy, it's actually C.S. Lewis's account of how he went from being a militant atheist to a Christian. And this is how he was converted. He kept encountering joy and beauty and had no explanation for it. And that's what drew him to Jesus. Because he could not deny the fact that joy and beauty really existed. And he knew that to be a consistent atheist, he had to say joy and beauty are illusions, they're not real. And he couldn't go there. Because if the world's an accident, those things don't exist. There's no reason or person to thank for beauty or for truth. Because you see, in the other worldview, if there was just something and it was impersonal and it became something else, and it became something else for no particular reason, then beauty, joy, truth, when you encounter them, there's no cause for thanks because there is no one to thank. There's no cause for wonder because wonder is just an illusion. Your instinct that there's right and that there's wrong, that love exists, that evil is bad, that beauty is beautiful, your instinct to feel this thing is simply chemicals operating your brain serving the purpose of furthering your species. Meaning there's no intrinsic value to any of that. And this is the great kind of philosophical glory and flaw of naturalistic Darwinianism. Don't hear what I'm not saying right now. I'm not commenting one way or another about evolution. If you say I did, I didn't. Here's what I'm saying. That's a great conversation to have. I think we should have it. I'm just not going to do it in this setting. Here's my point. Within that theory, the whole theory is driven by this notion that every species seeks survival. What that theory never asks is why. Uh, there, there are a lot of great things about that theory. I think we have much to learn. That's another conversation. What no one ever addresses, why would a species seek to survive? Because there's no value in life or death. Neither one of them is intrinsically better than the other. So survival has no meaning. And what's awesome and beautiful about the fact that we, even when we try to describe the created order and ignore God, our best attempts about thinking about it and yet try to deny God, we end up testifying to the fact that life is good and ought to be preserved and injustice is evil. So even in our scientific attempts to do science without God, we testify to the fact that life is good, that evil and injustice are wrong. It's kind of beautiful. Moses' point here is that there's one personal God who spoke creation into being. So what does that mean for us? This means everything. I mean, this is why the Bible starts here, because this means everything. It's the starting point for how you open your eyes every day. It has impact on everything that we do and everything that we feel. Because what it does is it gives us dignity and it gives us meaning. It gives our lives and our wants and our choices and our needs and our time meaning. And there's no place that this is demonstrated more clearly than Toy Story. Right? Because in Toy Story, the fundamental premise, especially of the first movie, is the underst- when you understand that you are someone's In other words, when you understand that you are someone else's, that changes everything, right? What's the conflict of the movie? Buzz doesn't understand who he is. He thinks he's independent, self-sufficient, 
Space Ranger, right? But Woody gets it. And, and, and buzzes in the story, because he believes that, it causes conflict and confusion, relational estrangement and disappointment. But Woody, right? We're talking about Darwin and Toy Story. We're covering everything tonight. Woody gets it. Aside from his struggle with jealousy over Buzz, he gets who he is. He knows who he is because he knows whose he is, right? The whole story is about his identity as Andy's toy. And believing and resting and knowing whose he is makes the world make sense to him. It makes it pleasant for him. It's what gives him meaning. I mean... If you want to talk about offensive things in the Bible, this is the single most offensive thing in the Bible. You are not your own. And the fact that we are not our own and instead we are someone else's, that actually grounds us, that gives us meaning, that gives us direction, that gives us purpose, and it gives us dignity. And the ridiculous notion that we own, this is the most un-American thing in the Bible, right? (laughs) This is saying you don't own your own life. And the notion that we own our own life and that we are to live for ourselves alone, that actually reinforces and glorifies the selfishness, which is the primary cause of all the pain in all of our lives. But we begin to live into the fact that we are someone else's. That changes everything. What else does this mean for us? That God has made us in creation, that we are His. It destroys any notion of materialism, right? It counters materialism. What I mean by that is simply the worship of stuff. The notion that you have to have things in order to be complete and full. This is the religion of our culture. So much so that people actually now take the Bible and create religions of materialism but dress it up with Christian language. Um, It's simply the belief that things make you happy, right? That things give you significance. And this account of Genesis says, no, no, no. Stuff can't bear the weight of the worship you want to give it. Gives us dignity, it counters materialism, and actually it also does this. It counters super spiritualism, and this is what I mean. It counters the notion that denying yourself happiness and the enjoyment of things is somehow super spiritual. This doesn't allow us to say, I'm better than people because I don't watch TV because I deny myself the enjoyment of so many good things. The Bible doesn't allow us to worship stuff, but the Bible doesn't have a low view of stuff. It actually has a very high view of stuff. I just mean the material world. Because what is the account, what is the chorus line of Genesis 1? God made things and he saw that it was good. He made stuff and he saw that it was good over and over and over again. Look, I'm happy I'm really genuinely happy that some of y'all are content without watching much TV. I'm, I'm, I'm sure there are people who truly are content without watching too much TV. But sometimes we think that people not enjoying creation means somehow they're super spiritual. Sometimes we think that when people don't enjoy creation and deprive themselves of just pleasant things, that somehow they're more spiritual than others. It might actually be that that's sub-spiritual. Because God made creation creation to be enjoyed, but not to be worshipped. And that's the crucial distinction when we confuse the gift and the gift giver. And there's a world of difference between enjoying creation and worshipping it. But my point is this. Enjoy it. 
It is good, and it's meant to be enjoyed. That's the reason God made it. He gives good gifts to his people so that we could enjoy them. The physical world is good. Good food is awesome. God likes it when people enjoy good food, right? Great art is awesome. God likes it when people enjoy great art. Good work is good. You know what God also enjoys? When people enjoy good football. Like, praise Jesus. We can praise Jesus for that. He's happy that y'all like good football. Makes him happy. He likes working cars and functional buildings and bridges and flowers, and he likes iPads. And he likes trees and mountains and oceans. He made creation good for the purpose of enjoying it, for both him enjoying it and his creation enjoying itself. And that's why it's all made. And that's our second point. The chorus line is telling us who made us God for what? God saw that he was what he made and he saw that it was good. And in verse 31, there's that climactic moment. He sees it all and he appraises it as very good. And God's not simply making a declaration of its goodness. What he's doing as he does that is he's delighting in it. He's not simply declaring its goodness. He's actually engaging and enjoying the goodness of his creation. He's an artist who's making something beautiful and appreciating it and enjoying it. That's the why. He made the world in order to delight in it. You're made to be delighted in by your creator. And Revelation 4 is actually the Apostle John getting a glimpse of what worship in heaven looks like. And this is what 4.11 says, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and praise. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Creation was made for the glory and the delight of the Lord, and created beings, when we're not blinded by our own sin, respond in worship. Glorifying our God. Everything that was made was made because God loved delighting in it. Do you see how much dignity that gives to everything you do. And there's important, I'm going to draw your attention to an important and kind of subtle point in this text that's just, it's cool. I think it gives more weight to that notion that we were made for God to just love delighting in his creation. When the, passion, when the passage begins, it says, in the beginning, God. And in the Hebrew, that word God is actually a very interesting word because it's plural. You've probably heard it before, Elohim. Im is the Hebrew ending that's plural. And yet, in other places in Scripture, God's very clear over and over again, especially uh, in Deuteronomy 6.4, I, I am the Lord your God, am one. And establishing the oneness of God is very important. And yet here, he's referred to, and actually through much of the New Old Testament, as plural. And we get, and we see in verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over it, and we meet this thing, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And yet, we also go to John 1. You don't have to go there, but in John 1, he talks about the beginning of the account, and we've read the story of God's Word, right? He spoke and created the world. And then in John 1, we're actually told that the Word of God is a person, and His name is Jesus. And so what we have in Genesis 1 is actually the first glimmers of the Trinity, of the fact that God is triune, that He is one and He is many. And see, this is important. This actually addresses the things we're talking about tonight. If God is not a unity, 
he's not one, he can't be ultimate. In other words, if there are multiple gods, then this God can't be, multi- can't be ultimate. He has to be the one true God. If it's there, well, actually there are several gods, well, then he's no longer ultimate. He's actually competing with other deities for power. However, if God is not a community in and of himself, then he can't be love. Because love is something that can only be expressed interpersonally. And you see, it's his love that actually drives him to create. For God to be love, for God to be ultimate, he has to be one. For God to be loved, to be love, he has to be community. And if he wasn't love before the creation of the world, he never would have made the world because that's precisely why he made it, to love it. It's an overflowing expression of his love. The triune God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who loved each other, loved each other so much they wanted to create something to continue to share that love with. That's what creation's made for. The Trinity is this weird, mysterious doctrine. We can talk about it later. It confuses us, but it's here from the very beginning. And it's fundamental to actually everything that we say. It's actually God's triune nature that he is three in one that leads him to create the world. His love so overflowing and outgoing that he actually chooses a creation to make a creation to share it with. And that's the gospel. That's why we were made. It's why everything was created, to be delighted in by the God of love. And the cool thing is, all of nature really testifies to this reality. You know what happens when my children, when I, when I delight in my children? They beam. They flourish. They become more and more what they're supposed to be when I can, when I can delight in them. And the, you know what happens when I delight in them and they become more and more the type of person they're supposed to be? I delight in them even more. And it's a process that continues. Now, I wish it was always that smooth and that's what it looked like all the time. Unfortunately, I'm not always delighting in them. <coughs> Jesus got to save them from me. But, um, but man, when I delighted in them, they flourish and they beam, and they smile, and they giggle. And the few moments where, like, I can just look at their eyes and really enjoy them and tell them about how beautiful they are to me, it, it's, I mean, it's one of the sweetest moments as a father. They're actually teased, you know, by how much their father loves them. They beam. Creation beams at its creator every day. This is what we feel when we encounter the beauty and the glory of nature. You feel it when you... We've, we've all had this moment. When you stop being distracted for a moment and look at and listen to the ocean, and you just kind of are in awe of it, right? When you encounter whatever it is, mountains, you feel like you're encountering something transcendent for a moment, like something powerful and wonderful is kind of before us. And yet, at the same time, you feel like you can't get quite in on it. You see these amazing things. You're aware that something powerful is there. That creation is just testifying to something glorious. And yet at the same time, you're never quite in on it. It seems like it's fleeting. We see it, but our taste of it or our experience of it seems to be less than what it was supposed to be. It's kind of like if your tongue is burnt and you eat something, you know the food is rich and good, but somehow you're not getting quite in on how rich and good it really is. It's creation beaming in its creator. And what you're seeing is that because the flowers haven't rebelled against God and the mountains haven't rebelled and the hearts of the stars and the clouds haven't turned away from God, they're beaming. And we're watching God delight in his creation and it all feels muted a little bit to us. And it feels muted to us because we have rebelled against our purpose and we are disconnected from that God. 
because we tried to be our own gods for our own delight. And so this is really kind of the closing application. And this semester we're going to unpack things more and more. But I talked with, with some students this weekend and kind of asked this question. What is your functional purpose? And I'm, at, and I'm choosing that word functional in there for a reason. Not simply what is your purpose. Functionally, what are you aiming for? If you watched on this TV screen every minute of your day today, what would someone else say, that person's moving towards this horizon, moving towards this goal, this is what they're aiming for? Because you see, we have our stated purpose that's cl- maybe remotely close to kind of what we're really angling for, but it's our stated purpose, it's our political campaign that maybe we don't really believe in, but we want everybody else to think we believe in. And the reality is, every minute of our day is actually ang- angling for something else. What is it, functionally? If you, took down, if you just surveyed every minute of a week, What would somebody look at each of those minutes and then look at you and say, this is what you're aiming for. This is what you believe your purpose is. What is it? It's terrifying to do that. I'd encourage you to do it. Put down your phone and your iPod. Put down everything for 30 minutes outside and ask yourself that question. It might be terrifying. Because we're all a little different, but we're all a little bit the same. This is what I want. I want to be a just barely good enough father and a just barely good enough husband that I don't embarrass myself or embarrass my family. And I want to be just witty enough that y'all think I'm cool and RF grows a little bit, right? That's what I'm aiming for because I don't want to work too hard. I want to be able to watch a ton of TV, you know? (laughs) I love television. What's your functional purpose? What is it you're aiming for? Um... Some of us are working hard and we don't know why. Some of us are lying to ourselves about our purpose. Some of us are doing a hundred good things, and yet we're doing it because we're trying to justify ourselves so that we can feel a sense of reward, which means that we're doing all our good things, but it's really just about us, right? Sit down and examine yourself. Why are you doing the things you do? Why are you terrified? What are your terrors? Why? And I think the reason that we do most of the things we do, and actually the reason we don't do most of the things we don't, is because we're afraid that we might not be delighted in. We might not be seen as beautiful. We might not be approved. We might not be accepted. And so our work and the things that we do and what we stress out about, we do them to make us worthy of delight, that we can be appraised as the right sort of person. And you see, the reason why we're living that way is because we ran from the person and ignored the person for whom we were made. And so Moses is writing Genesis 1 to say, don't you see how it was supposed to be? You were supposed to have your father look at you and say, I delight in you. You're accepted. You're loved. You're my perfect creation and you're beautiful. And you're to beam back at him. And his delight was to grow. Right? The whole therapeutic practice of this world is essentially built around, you know, oversimplifying it a little bit, it's built around the dysfunctions we have because our parents didn't delight in us the way that we were made to be delighted in because they actually never could. We're all trying to become beautiful, whether it's physically, whether it's morally, intellectually, professionally, academically, or we're trying to numb our need 
to be seen as beautiful. And it was all supposed to be good and beautiful. And Genesis 1 is here testifying. It wasn't supposed to be not good. You weren't supposed to come to Stanford and be lonely. You weren't supposed to come and be crushed by anxiety. The thing that someone did to you years ago that still defines you was never supposed to happen. Whatever happened to your family wasn't supposed to happen. You were never supposed to live in fear that a boy may never ask you out. You were never supposed to be ensnared to pornography. This isn't right in Genesis 1, as Moses writing and saying, that's not the way it was supposed to be. When it was created, it wasn't supposed to turn out like this. And this is the beautiful thing, is in the word for created is used again in, Genesis, in Isaiah 65. And this is the Lord telling us, Behold, I'm going to create a new heavens and a new earth. And the former things that weren't right, that went wrong with this, they're never going to be remembered. They're never even going to come to your mind. So be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I'm going to create a new Jerusalem, that's a new people of God, to be a joy, and her people will be a gladness. And I'll rejoice in my people, I will be glad in my people No more will there be heard any weeping. No more will there be cries of distress. There will never be an infant who lives but a few days, and an old man will fill out all of his days. God's making it over again. We crashed our purpose. We turned around, we made it about ourselves and our delight. But God didn't give up. Because Genesis 1 not the end after we broke it the story doesn't end in fact he tells us i'm going to start the work of creation over again i'm going to take this creation i'm going to redeem it i'm going to restore it he's making the heavens and the earth he's remaking a new people for it the right people things are going to be right again and all that's wrong will be washed away but this is what it means it means that the wrongness and the darkness in us has to be dealt with in order to get there. And that's the scary thing. He's got to destroy the wrongness and the darkness in us because we're the ones who brought it into this world. This is the good news. It's free. It's painful, but it's free because He demands nothing of you. He actually offers to take your darkness and put it on someone else and destroy that person for it. And that's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus takes on our darkness. But it's painful because it's precisely our darkness that we love the most. Right? In this semester in RUF, we're going to flesh out who we were supposed to be, how and why it went wrong, and how God, by His free grace, set about to make it right again. And this is all that's required to get in on the work of it getting made right again, is just to trust Jesus. Let's pray.